folks, Herb Anderson here. Welcome to season six. You know, I partnered up this season with Four Eyes because we are in some crazy times, right? We have uh, inventory shortages, we have an unstable vehicle value landscape, and we have high demand. So we've had to become better at alternative-based selling. And one of the ways that we can do that is by actively studying our consumers' behavior on our website and being able to follow up with them in a more intelligent manner. Because we don't have inventory right now, offering alternatives based on what customers are really interested in buying is crucial. And Four Eyes can really help you do that. It even gets better than that. By actively tracking website behavior, Four Eyes can improve your customer communication process through a series of intuitive email campaigns tailored to what vehicles your customers are engaging with. Look, it's a win-win. Click the link in the description of this episode to start your 60-day trial. Welcome to the show. We hope you have a blast. Thanks for making time for the Dealer Talk Podcast. Another business leader, here's a penny for your thoughts. This ain't a regular conversation, baby. This that Dealer Talk, yeah. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dealer Talk Podcast. This is your host, Herb Anderson. I have a very special guest today. Very excited for this conversation. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, Mr. Ian Nethercott. Did I say that correct, Ian? Yeah, Ian Nethercott. It's a British name. So there you go. Not very common in North America. Yeah, here's typically when you hear the applause, right? When (laughs) another little pause. Ian means John, if you didn't know. It's a oh, really right interesting John replacement. Another cool. cut's a British name, so it's uh, from England. This is part of my heritage. So. Yeah, right on. I'm related to most of them in, in North America. <laughs> Good. Um, dude, so, hey, man, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. i um, excited to kind of see where this conversation goes. We kick things off here at the Dealer Talk podcast with a recap. So tell us about you, man. Uh, 21 plus years in the auto industry, uh, 10 years retail, mostly for Honda. Uh, have a, a history in the industry in my family. My grandfather owned a bunch of dealerships. My dad and uncle worked in dealerships. My cousin works at a dealership outside of Toronto, a Hyundai store actually that he part owns. Uh, I myself got into retail mostly for Honda, but I've worked with dealers uh, for a little over 10 years in various areas. Uh, but I worked retail myself pretty much every job in a dealership. So salesperson, sales manager, lease manager, internet manager. Uh, I've worked with uh, F&I uh, individuals, training them all over North America. I've worked in call centers, set those up and train those up. Uh, I've worked with service departments. Uh, I've worked uh, uh, with a company that has tablets called Dealer Effects training in that area. I've worked in the non-prime space, both on the digital side and also training people in that area. Uh, currently work in the web space. I work for a company that uh, has a revolutionary web platform called NavBat, which is changing the way websites are done for automotive. And I've also had the opportunity to really help people from coast to coast to coast all over North America uh, get better at automotive. I mean, really, for me, it's about customer experience, improving, and also getting better than you were the day before. I mean, I got into the car industry really by accident because I felt the bar was just set so low. I've been a career salesperson. I was like, okay, like this process for most people is not enjoyable. That's a great opportunity for someone who wants to make it enjoyable. And that's what made me very successful as a car salesperson was, for me, it was all about customer experience. Like, yeah, I had to make a living, sure, but it really was about creating a better experience for that customer. And I'd say that's even more true today. Uh, And lately, over the last uh, close to two years, I've done a show called The Auto Hub Show on Mondays at 11 o'clock East Coast on Zoom, now on LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live. And the reason for that show was to really help dealers get better and really help uh, people working with dealers connect with dealerships and also people in the industry just connect with other people to get better. Because to me, it's about really getting better at what you do in any way that you can. So that's really what I'm all about. Uh, I currently live in Vancouver, BC, but I'm from Toronto originally, and I spent 10 years living in the US. I work with dealers all over North America. So I'm pretty familiar with the landscape, no matter what country. And we even had guests on the show from as far away as Serbia, the country, 
or sorry, no. Georgia, Georgia, the country. Uh, and we also have had people on the show from Italy and from a small island off the coast of Spain called Majorca, I think it's called. We also had a gentleman from Norway on from his boat, Norway or Sweden, I think he's from. And we had one of our guests who is a Canadian, but he happens to have a house in Greece. So he did the show on his iPad from his house in Athens. So the international scale of things is quite interesting. Yeah. How cool is it, man, that we have the technology uh, today to to be able to, first of all, do this kind of th these kinds of, of shows and these kinds of, uh, you know, to have these kinds of platforms to promote and um, help others, like you said, uh, grow and expand within the automotive industry. And then not only that, but take it international and connect with other folks and kind of get their perspective on things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. Years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I did a podcast with a buddy of mine. It was on social media. He used to do this every, I think it was every two weeks. We'd do these podcasts in the back of a bar. And we'd always do two or three back to back. So we'd do a first one and then we'd take a break and do a second recording and we'd take a break and do a third recording. And then he'd put these out over a month. And the funniest thing about it was as the shows progressed, people got more and more intoxicated. So the topics went more and more off the rails. And because it was, was on social media anyway, it got me in a little bit of trouble. Uh, I was working at a dealership at the time, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and I think that's what's interesting is you've seen sort of the convergence from audio podcasts to video podcasts to streaming to all of the above. And I think what's the most interesting, at least for me, is that people prefer in some cases to listen to it in an audio format, whether it be Clubhouse or other. Some people want to watch it on video, but some people will stream it. But the options today to make a show that's essentially like a television show with minimal equipment and... I guess limited skill set is impressive, but it can be global. And I think that's something that, you know, I've never, never would have connected with a lot of these people globally at the scale I have without the presence of a show on a regular basis. And I think that's the key thing is you need to be doing it consistently, whether it's a, once a month, once every two months, once a week, that's really what it comes down to. And you learn as you go. I think the mistake a lot of people make is they go, Hey, I have to be an expert on video editing and on promotion right. and on audio and on streaming and on uh, producing content and lead-ins and guest interviews and finding time. No, you, you, you just need to start somewhere. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, I just, you know, from my own personal experience, I remember when we first started this deal and I didn't, I had a book that was podcast for dummies and just kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> co connected that way. I, Anchor was, was like the, the, the platform to just kind of push or syndicate to all the different, uh, wherever people listen to podcasts and just bought a couple of mics and kind of went from there and it's just progressed. You get better at it just by doing it. You know what I mean? So, um, having just that, just starting as, 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 as everything. You know, yeah, I mean, so. you look at uh, streaming, and this is something I added recently. Um, initially, I was doing Zoom, and then I used Buzzsprout, so I was syndicating the podcast version and YouTube, of course. And then I started doing uh, streaming, and I started with LinkedIn Live. The reason is I've been trying to get on LinkedIn Live for a couple of years, so I finally got worthy for LinkedIn Live. So, <laughs> so then I had to then I had to figure out a new piece of software, which is StreamYard, which works like Buzzsprout for podcasts. But there's a really cool piece of software for the Macintosh called Loopback. And if you're familiar with the old school switching boards where you had inputs and outputs and you could turn audio on and off, those kind of things back in the day, it's basically a digital version of that, which is actually kind of interesting, especially since it costs 100 bucks. Uh, and I don't even know if you can get a switching board for that. But the thing that's crazy is on top of all this different technology, which is somewhat complicated, what you can do with it is is probably more powerful than stuff, say, 20 years ago, TV stations were using. Like, it's it's amazing how fast this stuff has moved forward. Like, when you look at uh, um, StreamYard, for example, I mean, you can syndicate, I think, up to six different streams with that, which is like, I mean, I, I and today they announced you can do it with Teams. So if you have a co-host, you can be streaming together in different locations. I mean, it was like the, the pace of acceleration here is, is, mm -hmm. is crazy. It just it's just going fast. Yeah. And I mean, to tie it to, to the car business, right? Like, 
um, you know, car dealers and car salespeople and service people. And we all have access to this, to these platforms, to this technology. And it's all now it's just up to the creativity of each individual to kind of showcase um, whether it be their personality or their salesmanship or their interest to help people in the car business, or maybe their interest in other areas that connects you with like-minded individuals that know that you also happen to sell cars and maybe you can, you, you know, it's just, there's all kinds of different avenues to take this deal um, and, and utilize it. I think about, you know, like what would we have done 20 years ago to put something like this together and how costly it would be and, and all these different things. And now, man, you can just kind of play and go. So yeah, I mean, cool. there's a guy we've had on our show. His name is George Saraglu. He's a Greek guy in Toronto. He does these crazy videos. I don't know how he got approval from his dealer principal or Toyota to do these things. <laughs> he does these crazy videos. I mean, I was doing social media 15 years ago at a dealership and got myself into some trouble for it. But, you know, realistically, uh, we did have a show called uh, Young, Young Guns versus Old Dogs, where we had a bunch of guys who do this at scale. Um, you know, he does it really amateurish, but it works for him. And it works for the dealership and people know him because he does this on a regular basis. And, you know, there was other people on the show that do it um, in, from different, you know, different brands, different locations. And we've had other shows about that, but a lot of people don't do it because they're, they're scared. Yeah. Uh, they just, they're just not sure what people are going to react. I mean, he's had Toyota corporate pay him to come, you know, to their head office and teach their, their marketing people what to do. And he's just doing this really, you know, single take videos with crazy, you know, I mean, the stuff that, you, that I wouldn't have done, but it works for him. Right. So it's it's a question of, you know, taking the technology and broadcasting what you do and obviously getting approval from the dealer principal or the brand. But I think that dealerships and uh, manufacturers aren't doing this enough. I think, you know, with with brands like Tesla who spend zero dollars on advertising. I know, right. You know, I mean, surely you can you can do the same thing for minimal money. I mean, even a podcast or, or, or a vlog or uh, a stream, I mean, really you need very minimal equipment to do it properly. Uh, and really it's just a question of having a passion for it and having a love for it. It's not, it's not as difficult as you might, it might seem. Uh, but, you know, there's obviously examples of people that have done it better than others, but at sure. the end of the day, it's putting in the effort, really. Yeah. And you get better too, man. So that's the other thing. Like you may start, and I'm not going to say it's going to be awesome. Maybe it, maybe it does suck in the beginning, but, you know, if you're consistent with it, the, the cool thing is that you get a little bit more comfortable and, you know, ideas start to flow a little bit easier and, and you know, it just becomes more natural and then it gets progressively better. So, and I also think that the audience or your potential audience is very forgiving as well in the beginning, you know, because yeah. I, like I said, I listened to the, the first couple of episodes that we did, maybe the whole first season. And it sounds like horrible, man. You can heal You can hear the breathing into the mic. And it's yeah. just like, like, I, I'd be like, man, there's no way I would sit for 40, 40 minutes or for an hour to listen to an episode. I don't care who's the guest, you know, no. so. Yeah, and now I mean, we're, you know, we're six seasons into it. So I mean, I, I've I've learned a lot in format. Um, I've learned a lot from trying stuff. Uh, I've learned a lot from um, actually some of our best ideas come from guests on the show for what episodes to do because you know we, we have a let's just say ten to twelve con major topics that we touch on a lot. But you can also focus much like Ted Ings has done with the roundtable on just one area. So mm -hmm. it's not to say that you have to do everything. We we opt to do a lot of things um, just because we want to keep it interesting for us. But also it's the personalities. Like Jeff is a different personality than I am. Uh, Brandon and Rick, who started the show, are totally different people than we are. So that's part of it. But also some guests are much more dynamic than others. So some sure. guests take it in a different direction. Uh, the most interesting shows we tend to do have a lot of guests. Uh, so we did one on EVs where we had I think, about seven different guests. Uh, we did the one on for on the show about shows where we had about seven guests on it. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's great to have one guest. I mean, we had this gentleman from Italy who 
basically carried a whole show by himself. And he was talking about stuff that you don't hear about much here because he happens to live in Italy. So he would have, he has some opinions on the European car market that in North America, we would just not really be exposed to. So right. that was interesting as well. But the topic that we've been really hammering for a long time, which we have yet to get the traction, I don't know why, is on uh, human resources and automotive. Um, we feel it's a big issue because the turnover is so high, but getting any dealer to watch it or any manager to watch it <laughs> is, is very challenging. I mean, the HR people are passionate, but I feel for them because the dealer's like, eh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, we just expect it, man. Well, it's, it's just, it's funny because you hear numbers like 90% leave the business and you'd think there'd be alarm bells going off. But I mean, I, I feel for the HR people in the business because they just, the, the dealers just don't care. They really don't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, wow, no matter how, which angle I've taken a look at it. And I also had one other example, which was kind of interesting. One of the first shows we did on women and automotive, I had all kinds of people telling me, oh, don't do it. It's a bad topic. Nobody wants to hear about it. It's not not a good idea. And not only have we done a series of these shows, they're some of our best um, listened to shows, mm -hmm. not only by women, but by men. But what surprised me the most was just how much negativity when we did the first one. People were so like against the idea, which is kind of interesting looking back at it now. So. You know, have fun with it. That's, that's yeah. the way I look at it. And also try to have a structure. The other thing we learned uh, when I first took over the show, we would ask each guest a series of questions. And then we go to the next guest and we ask them a series of questions. And then we go to the next guest and ask a series of questions. What we learned was it was much better to have a round table. It's much better to have a real structured front end to the show, which we do mm -hmm. now with a, a short video. And we have some other things that we do. But also, if you ask one guest and the next guest and the next guest, it's a much better flow for everybody. And the guests are much more engaged. The other thing that I would like to see more of, and we have at points seen more and less of it, is people asking questions. Like, it's amazing to me how different questions come up that I wouldn't have thought of from so, audience members. Let's talk about that, man, because I, I agree. That one is a tough one. And I, you know, I, got, I owe a, an apology to to a lot of folks because in the beginning um we asked for questions and we got a ton of questions yeah you know especially after season three and i was trying hard man to incorporate that into the format but it's just i didn't you know like i haven't found a way to do it because i feel like if you answer some questions and not all questions then you're kind of leaving some people hanging some questions just i'm just you know just to be honest were just not good questions you know what i mean yeah, and well, then and then what, like, how do you, you know, how do you pick and choose the ones? Like, I feel like we would be super biased here because depending on the situation, you know what I mean? And what's going on in the market and, um, and then you'd leave people hanging and it's like, how do you really address that? You know? Well, there's a couple of things you got to look at. Number one, the show I do is a live show. So we've got to play, uh, we've got to filter questions because we can't, we refuse to ask inappropriate questions. So if people pose that, we just don't ask. And we have had situations. Uh, one of the first shows ever on the Auto Hub show back in the early days, someone was someone in the audience was trying to pitch something instead of asking questions. And we're like, dude, like, no. What are you doing, man? <laughs> you had like a whiteboard behind him with like, is this, I don't know. It was just, it was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know, so that was another one that was kind of funny. But the other thing is you'll have people, and this isn't in sincerity to the, to the people that are the, the speakers on the show, we'll tell them, listen, if there's a question that we don't feel comfortable with, we're not going to ask it. We're, our job is not to put you, put this person against that person. That's not what we do because mm -hmm. it doesn't help anybody. And also it's going to impact people wanting to be on the show, uh, much like they do on, you know, talk shows is they put people in bad situations to see what happens. I mean, we refuse to do that. Right. But also in some cases, and most of our questions come from a chat box uh, during the show uh, right now on Zoom, but we're also starting to, as we stream, we'll probably start getting questions from these other platforms, Facebook and LinkedIn, um, you know, which is a little hard to manage from a, from a strictly technological point of view. We try to just ask the questions that make sense. And in our case, we can usually uh, ask all of them. 
Now, some guests won't want to answer them for whatever reason, but also very rarely will we see someone ask them live on video, but that does happen because we do have live people that are, are watching the show that are in the audience that can't ask questions. Those tend to be people that are regular listeners. So the people that tend to be better askers of questions, for example, will be the people that are regular listeners that are comfortable with the format and they already know kind of the ground rules. Where it gets a little bit difficult is when you have inappropriate questions or to mm -hmm. your point, just not really good questions. Like I'd love to add, I'd love to ask that question, dude, but like it, it, that's not really it's, relevant. Right. Exactly. In all honesty, like it's just not a good question. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and most people understand that. I mean, I guess you're going to get people that, you know, get upset. I mean, much like if you have a show where you have a politician on and they ask a question and it's clear that the, the news person isn't asking those questions because yeah. they don't want to put them in a spot, right? <laughs> but uh, we don't do it for that reason. We do it just because, like, we don't see it adding any value, right? Right. Well, and, that's the, and, and that's the thing. Like, um, what people don't realize, I think, when they listen to these shows is that you got a certain amount of time. I mean, this isn't the Joe Rogan experience, right? You're not going to yeah. sit here and talk for four hours. Like, you know what I mean? You have a certain amount of minutes to kind of get to the get to the point of that episode or what you're trying to cover. And you got to, you know, you got to squeeze in all that all that information into 40 minutes or so. So, it, 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 it you know, if you don't do it right, you're you know, you miss sharing that valuable information with the audience, which is, you know, yeah. and I've done shows like that too, that I've, I've, I'm done with it. And then I re-listen to the episode or whatever. And I'm like, man, I mean, there was at least two or three other questions or other points that we should have made in that episode. And we just, we, we, we didn't get to it. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to get a lot of stuff covered with multiple guests in a limited time frame. Like that's why I try to shoot for that three to five, speakers or three to five guest speakers in a show that tends to be the sweet spot two to three three to five whenever you get into the seven or more it tends to cut down on the content and then you do have cases where you'll have one speaker um that just takes over the show yeah <laughs> like a really strong speaker i think uh, i think it was the gentleman from Carnow. is it tim cox um he, his dad was a preacher i think and man that guy can speak like i, I mean he just takes over the you ask him a question, you're just kind of like, you know, yeah. It's kind of like listening to Brian Benstock or um, uh, Tim Long's another one that's really, you know. Uh, I also do a show called Level Up sometimes um, on on. Uh, we do it usually on Zoom. It's a small group of people, but uh, uh, you know that that show is really good too because it's really structured based on leadership of the of the group where he basically he's got an agenda, right? Yeah, um, and he's and he's pushing that, uh, and that's also true with everything. Used cars on Fridays too is it's like very much a that's an agenda. And Ben Stock can speak for an hour by himself. <laughs> Doesn't even have to be. A yeah, guy. he's he's a man. I've, I've been trying to get him on the show for a minute. Like he'd be a great guest to talk to as well. Uh, I know him. I mean, he's a very good guy. He's just busy, but yeah. I mean, his 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 show on Fridays on or sorry Saturday mornings on Clubhouse. Highly recommend. Yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's a massive amount of value in an hour. It's just really early for me. Yeah, so I don't hit it up every week, but it's it's you know if you he's got a structure and he can do an hour by himself, and it sounds like it's all prepared. I don't know how much it is, but he's he's just can command that kind of audience, right? Oh yeah, for sure. So um, so what's going on, man? What's it, you know what, what are you what are you focusing on these days? How how are things going? Uh, Lot, lots of focus on technology. Um, mm. We did a show this week um, on uh, what are you doing with your freaking software? Uh, <laughs> and, and the reason is, you know, dealers go and they go to an NADA or they go to whatever show, uh, digital dealers in Vegas a couple weeks ago, and they buy whatever the bungle is this week, right. software, hardware, whatever. And then, you know, a year later, like, what are you doing with that? Oh, I don't know. But you bought it to do this. So the reason we had the show is we're asked in a lot of cases on shows and even in between shows by people, okay, like is digital retail good? Are websites good? Is this software good? What about used cars? What about operations? What about F&I? What about training? And, you know, we thought we should have a show where we just talked about software. So we had a, a wide array of guests on the show. 
uh, to really talk about, you know, how do you get your team to use software at scale and what's happening in software? Because when I was a digital dealer, there was a lot of AI, a lot of other things. The pace is changing, but the question is, what do you do as a dealer to make the right purchases and make sure that those purchases get put in place to move the, the, the dealership forward? Because we all know less and less people are coming into dealerships and more and more people are doing more online, which is a little bit of a challenge for some of the older car salespeople who want to really do business belly to belly. They don't really want to do it on Instagram or on Facebook or on uh, texting or even you know, anything but a phone or in person. So it's that evolution of car selling versus 20 years ago when everything was done on a long form piece of paper sure. um, is accelerating. Uh, but there's also a lot of pushback from the dealers saying, I don't want to spend a lot of money on a digital retail solution if it isn't going to do anything for me. Now more than ever, businesses need more efficient sales. That's why thousands of dealerships trust Four Eyes to help with things like automated inventory email updates and ensuring all of your leads get into the CRM. To try Four Eyes for free, visit foureyes.io slash dealer talk. That's foureyes.io slash dealer talk. And in 2021, they figure out they got it all figured out. They don't need to buy anything. They figure, okay, well, people are going to come in and buy it and pay too much anyway. So right. I'm just not going to change anything. Like there was a sales trainer that I know he was on LinkedIn today saying, oh, you should get into car sales because you'll make 300000 to $700,000 a year right now. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, like I, I just didn't agree with that. I was like, well, no, neither do I. Right? but you know, what are you setting these people up to do? You bring them in. I mean, and uh, I think David Long was talking about this on one of our shows recently. He said, you get this guy who used to work at Wendy's, who's now making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year selling cars, and then next year he's making fifty grand because suddenly there's tons of cars, and then you know yeah, like everything's when, when it levels up. I had I was talking to Ali Reader recently, and that's exactly yeah. what one of the things that we you know it's like there's people that have come into the car business during this whole situation that are that don't know what it's what a five hundred to six hundred gross is, right? Yeah. So when when that when those deals come back. They're going to be like, oh, shit. There's <laughs> so, so, lots of discussion about pay plans. Uh, we did a show, was it Does Your Pay Plan Suck a while ago, which people really liked. We do some fun shows. So we have one about performance cars, which was a lot of fun, where we had Sarah from Porsche, Porsche in L.A. And we had uh, uh, Steve Dynan's shop on to talk about, you know, if you got too much money and then you want to throw more money on top of your too much money to make your car go faster, here's what you do kind of thing. So we threw that in. We did have a show about, you know, what made you a car fanatic. So we, we do those shows as well. Uh, we try to keep it light, but we try to add a lot of value. I mean, I think the biggest challenge uh, dealers have is that just they're dealing with the change. They're dealing with the customers that are changing. They're trying to figure out what to do, but they also don't know what necessarily is the right thing to do. Like why I bring up that pay plan piece is a lot of what I'd say the innovators are, the troublemakers are in the industry, they're really thinking ahead. They're already thinking like, I've got to set that salesman up not to quit when his pay drops in half. I got to teach him how not to spend like he's going to make a half a million dollars a year next year when he's only going to make a hundred, right? So I, I've got to get that person educated into that. You've got to still go through the steps, right? Mm -hmm. You're still going to take care of that customer. You can't charge them $40,000 more for an Escalade this year and then expect them to be happy in two years when they come back and they're underwater. So, I mean, there's just, there's definitely a lot of interesting things going on right now. Uh, and used cars are something we've done a number of shows on as well. And we're doing one next week, but used cars to me are where all the money is going to be for the next 18 to 24 months. I mean, there's just not going to be new inventory. And that's another thing that's been interesting is trying to get manufacturers on the show. So we did a show uh, about electric cars a while ago, and we got some people from Hyundai to come on and talk about electric cars. But then we wanted to do a show on the chip shortage, which we did. We talked to every manufacturer. Nobody would want to come well, on. Not, nobody wants to talk about nobody. that, right? <laughs> like, we're, we're not coming on. We're not talking about chips. We're not saying anything. And it was really kind of funny because it was like when, whenever you get a hard topic, Getting a manufacturer to show up and say anything is impossible, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, this one, I think this one is a is a weird one. I don't think they they even now. I think it'd it'd be hard to get them 
on. Uh, if, so. if you if you if you need a connection to manufacturer, let me know. Uh, I've had them on shows before. Uh, the other problem I find. Well, no, I mean, yes, so do I. But I mean, I'm just saying to talk about that specific topic right now. I still feel like it's, it's, it's. Um, you you know, like I was going to ask you. You mentioned right now, 18 to 24 months, and my my ear just kind of perked up because I'm like, dude, do you really think it's going to take that much longer? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Maybe longer, but th- think about it this way: a good buddy of mine, he did a video. He's actually a salesman, actually, but he did a video to demystify this for people because, you know, the OEMs are saying, yeah, 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 it's all good. Don't worry. You know, just take orders. They'll be fine. They show up at his dealership. Oh, yeah, no problem. You talk to uh, dealers. Oh, yeah, the Chrysler rep says, you know, we're going to have all the trucks in three months. Well, how many you got now? Oh, we got about five. I'm like, oh, okay. How many do you normally have? 200. Oh, okay. So that's going to be fixed. Okay. Whoa. But what he said was as follows. He goes, the average chip count in a car today is a thousand so if you don't have chips and let's just say you can make more chips which i think they will be able to eventually um but it's what they're going to do is they're going to produce the cars that they have the chips to make so they're going to make different cars but the thing that really struck out for me and he did a quick video which i'm happy to say you can share it but uh, his name is marco uh, but uh, Marco Manuepto, I think is this, how you pronounce his last name. He works in a Mercedes store, actually. He used to work at an Audi store, I think. Uh, and he said, listen, what percentage of the global chips are put into cars? Of the total supply of chips in the world, what percentage do cars make up? No clue here. 10%. What? Yep. What percentage of chips does Apple consume? If if that's 10, 40%? You're close, 30%. So basically what happened was, and this is the manufacturers aren't going to tell you this. The rep's not going to tell you this. People make chips probably won't tell you this. You can look it up yourself online. Basically what happened beginning of the pandemic is people went, ah, people mm-hmm. aren't going to buy cars. They're going to be in their house. We don't need as many chips. Let's talk to procurement. Let's cut down our, the amount of chips we're buying. Because we're not going to make as many cars, not going to be as many sales. We got to sort of get ahead of this, right? Because you got to remember back in 2007, I think there was that tsunami in Japan that wiped out a couple of these chip plants. Right. So now the people that make chips, and this is a highly specialized production to make chips for cars anyway. It's it's, it's multi-billion dollar plants and the time to make them is huge. Basically, they said, okay, well the car guys don't want the chips anymore and, and Apple wants them. So we're going to, you know, change production yeah. on Apple. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. So then the car people started getting freaked out because people want cars. They didn't expect that. So now they're trying to ramp chips back up, but now they don't have the same amount of production capacity. So it's going to take time for that to happen. And on top of it, you've got another problem, which is actually an opportunity if you look at it, but um, all the manufacturers then figured out something else, as did the dealers. Why am I stocking 300 cars when I can just order cars that I need? Right. Yeah. And that saves me on my flooring costs. It saves me on my inventory. It saves me on days in stock. It, it's kind of the Toyota model or the Tesla model. And some of the manufacturers have already embraced that, Ford being one, but other ones I'm sure are doing the same thing. Well, that, so that's we the whole made, concept of uh, JIT, right? Just in time yeah. manufacturing? I mean, Kaizen is a great example of that, but even with Toyota, if I basically only built the cars I had sold, that's a good thing for everybody. Now, whether that will last and we'll we'll, we'll end up eventually going back to that, I got 300 cars in stock, so let's blow them all out because I'm getting 300 more next month. I don't know. But the other thing that dealers have realized, and so is the manufacturer, is why am I discounting cars or incentivizing discounts when I don't have any? Well, that's the thing. Like now, 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 demand and supply kick in at a at their normal levels, and then you know, like the demand is there, the supply is well. Right now, it's low, but if we get to that model of ordering, then the supply is going to be, it, it, you know, that that supply would be right where it needs to be, and we can all make more money. Um, and the manufacturer wants that too. They they don't want to incentivize. Do they they don't want to give you money to blow out a car. They don't want to do that. But do they? But and here's my here's my 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 you know my question for you. Like I've uh, and I've had this conversation on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Do you think that the, that the manufacturers you know 
don't you think that for them the end objective is to produce 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 right the, you know like isn't that going to be like push that inventory out or do you think that this has kind of readjusted the way that they look at their production and therefore it's gonna we're gonna progressively go into that ordering model i hope we do man i really do because if there's a big takeaway from this because what's happening in the in the market right now it's artificial it's this isn't isn't going to last but if we can yeah. go to that production model i think that it would be it would be advantageous for everybody well i as part of my mba i took an operations class and you study all kinds of different operations airport security restaurant business mm. this that manufacturing so one of them was they compared general motors to toyota and they were really comparing, you know, like how many days of parts do you have? How much inventory is on the ground? What's the manufacturing process? How, what's the production scaling? You know, how, how much, you know, how, can, how quick can you ship production? And the thing that was stark, and this study was from, I think, the 80s, maybe late 80s, early 90s. But they were talking about Kaizen, which is Toyota's way of doing everything, versus right. General Motors, which is just, you know, we'll build all this shit and we'll hope people buy it. If we don't, we'll force them to buy it. And if they, Still don't want to buy it. We'll send it to the dealer and then we'll give them money to get rid of it. Basically, it's their angle, right? But the thing that struck me as surprising uh, when I when I looked through this study and when I studied this was being a car person was just the massive amount of difference in revenue from Toyota to General Motors. And the reason was Toyota wasn't building stuff hoping people would buy it even then. They, they looked at what the orders were that the dealers wanted, and they were matching production as much as possible to that. And it made them vastly more profitable as a manufacturer because they didn't have the inventory of parts. They weren't building stuff people didn't want. They didn't have to put incentives on it to blow it out. Right. So essentially, it was a superior model. Now, I think what's happened because of the pandemic is these other manufacturers who were doing it the old school way and probably have been since back in the day are starting to figure out, well, not only am I happier as a manufacturer not to have all this stuff, right? my dealers are happier and everybody makes more money. So I think that's where it's going to crystallize. Now, does that mean it's going to be perfect? I don't think so. No, but, of course not. But I think also the way people buy cars today and the amount of cars people are going to buy generationally is probably going to change anyway. So it's about time for them to say, okay, what, what are we building? But not just from a cost point of view if i'm only building the cars people want i'm not building extra cars i don't need to build which by the way i don't make money on anyway as much money because i have to then blow them out so historically i think the manufacturers have just said okay uh, i'm gonna build uh, a cadillac or i'm gonna build a chef let's build 20 different variations on the chef model we don't know what people want anyway but we'll just we'll build 20 and then you know, if they don't buy it, we'll figure out some way to get rid of it. Worry about it later, man. Yeah. Worry about it later. And, and then you look at the Tesla model or the Lucid model or the Rivian model. Okay, well, we're only going to build the cars that we actually got a deposit on that someone wants. So we're not going to build 20 variations. We're going to build three, which, by the way, is pretty much what Toyota has done for a long time. Right. But I would even argue the Japanese have moved over the last 10 years more to that American model, American domestic manufacturing model, where they have too many variations. You don't need all these models. Like try selling a, a General Motors pickup or a Chrysler pickup. Just the variations or a Ford, Ford commercial vehicle. The variations that they make for no reason at all. Like why do I need all these variations if people don't want it? So well, I think some of the distinct advantages to that yeah. model. And that's a great point too because what ends up happening for the customers is they all, oftentimes end up getting – either less than what they wanted or more than what they wanted on their car. And the ordering model allows them to get exactly what they want. Mm -hmm. Right. So I and think when you that combine that with chips, yeah. I can't make as much cars anymore anyway, because I don't have the chips to do it. So what I want to do is then only build the cars that I actually have an order for that I have well, chips to make. Right. Right. So instead of building 20 basic pickups and hoping someone wants of less chips, I can build five luxury pickups where I make more money that people actually order. Yeah. So that's the other reason why I think 18 to 24 months, if they stick with the model they've had, but if they can change that model, they might be able to make the inventory show up faster. And by the time this all happens, customers are going to be conditioned to ordering cars anyway. Or Exactly. And they're going to be coming in and showing up. Do you have one? No, it's three months. Okay. Well, what do you want? Since you're ordering it anyway, I mean, Ferrari exactly. and Rolls have done this for a long time. Yeah. Get exactly um, what know. you want. 
yeah, I mean, I want it in pink with the with the green hood. Sure, that's fine. Whatever you want, man. Like we can build that. Right. And I think it'll also make the plants more effective because you'll actually be able to figure out what to build at what plant based on where you're sending that vehicle. I mean, not based strictly on government incentives, I would guess. But I mean, I think, you know, that's part of it, too, is if I'm Mazda, for example, and I'm building all my cars in Japan, before I throw them on a boat to go across the ocean, I probably want to make sure I have the right cars on there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, the efficiencies that this would accelerate, I mean, man, it would be great. Not, Not to mention that it plays also into into the future, right? And the ability to um, hopefully efficiently transact your your entire uh, purchase remotely. Well, also Um, engine choice. So let's just talk a little bit about EVs, even though I think EVs are kind of interesting. I did a post on uh, EVs um, on LinkedIn and the results I got were pretty funny. I think, uh, (laughs) I think, Almost almost 65% said it was about money. It wasn't about the planet, which I thought was kind of funny. Because um, I put, you know, is it a smoke, is it profit or is it just a smoke, is it saving the planet or is it just smoke screen for profit? I think was the, the poll. And almost 65% said, yeah, it's all about profit, dude. That's nothing to do with the planet, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But when you think about engine choice over the next 10 years, let's just say, for example, a, I want to build a car that a customer wants. B, I want to build a car based on the chips I have. C, I want to have engine options. You're going to eventually have a modular car anyway. So mm-hmm. did you want a hybrid? Did you want gas? Did you want hydrogen? Did you want electric? It makes a lot of sense for the manufacturers right. to start to figure that out, especially if they got a lower profit margin on electric cars because of the service model right. than they did with the ICE cars. And I, I, I know they do have that problem. But they're going to be forced to do it anyway because the government, the politicians think they can change everything, which who knows if they can. But, um, you know, that's another whole area where where I think it makes sense. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, the car retail model is changing. The way people buy cars is changing. If you see what Hertz is doing with Tesla recently, they're going to eventually turn the lease model into an MRR model, much like a cell phone. Um, and you know, you've got to have the ability to be flexible as a manufacturer in price point and what you're building and how you're building it and how you're retailing it. And I think Kaizen from Toyota has already been proven that they're probably the most flexible manufacturer of automobiles on planet earth. I mean, I know Tesla seems to think he can build it better than anyone, but I'd put the Japanese and the Germans up against them all day long and they'll beat them. It's just a question of when. Right. Because they're arguably better manufacturers at scale. They've yeah. done it for years. They just change what they're building. And I know Toyota is going to bring the heat hard. Well, I mean, you can argue. Right. You can argue with results, man. I yeah. mean, like you know, it's it's just it kind of is what it is. But yeah. So what do you? So okay, I, I buy into that, man. Like I really, I I really hope for, that's my hope for the automotive industry. I really hope that that mm-hmm. happens because I think that's going to leave more money in the pockets of of the people in this industry, which is, you know, it would be great uh, for, for everybody. But what about the impacts to the retail model? Um, you know, I mean, fewer cars means potentially fewer people, potentially the ability to maybe uh, condense positions or fuse them rather, you know, maybe a end to end salesperson model, yeah. um, something to that effect. Do you, do you think that that would be, that's not too far out of the realm of possibility? Well, first of all, I, I don't think you're going to need as much staff. I mean, I think that's the one of the many things dealers recognize through the pandemic. The first thing they did was they cut staff by 75% because they were panicked. They're like, oh, shit, right. you know, no one's yeah. going to buy anything. We've got all the staff. we got all this inventory. What are we going to do? And then they panicked like they do. Uh, and they laid off 75% of their staff. And I remember this because we had shows about uh, rehiring. We did one, I think it was called rehiring or restaffing. And, and, and dealers on the shore are like, well, what does that mean? It's like, okay, so I had 10 salesmen or I had 30 salesmen. Now I have five. So of the 25 I let go, which, which of those would you rehire if given a choice? He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, clearly you didn't need them. <laughs> clearly some of them were very good. Right. <laughs> so if you, were, if you were a betting man and you were going to hire some back and retrain them, I'm assuming – um, you know, which, how many and which ones? He said, that's a great question. I said, yeah, exactly. So 
the next question is, okay, I've got a, I've got three, I got three sales managers, I got a general manager, I got five F and I people. I noticed that I could get by with two F and I people and two managers, and maybe five to ten salesmen when I had thirty. What's going to happen is they're going to start looking at the math. They're going to say, okay, my my employee cost outside of my fixed operations cost, my land cost, and my and my parts and inventory costs are my highest cost, right? That the variable cost for people is high. Yeah. How many do I need? And more importantly, how many do I need to do the task that could be done by one person? Do I need three, right? So F&I is the one that comes to mind. Sales manager is another one. If I entrust that salesperson to negotiate a deal online or over the phone or over whatever, and also pre-sell F&I, maybe I need a clerk. Maybe I don't need an F&I person. With digital retail, maybe I don't need an F&I person. Right. I know Stock's been talking about this for years, to have about having a clerk. But it's really going to come down to less staff to do the same thing. But the key piece that I think everyone's forgetting, and this is, is a topic I've been talking about for a long time, that customer experience is important from first point of contact, whether it be a phone or whether it be a phone like this, yeah. or whether it be the internet, is imperative because there's no extra customers. So what we had, I guess, before electric cars is we had 12 to 18 manufacturers. And now we're going to have probably five to 10 electric manufacturers join the phrase. So we're going to have 20. Some of them are going to make it, some of them aren't. And then the, you know, some of the traditional manufacturers will do electric at scale and they'll do well, some won't. But at the end of the day, there's a finite amount of buyers. So the first thing that every manufacturer needs to focus on, and this includes dealers, you've got to hold on to all your customers because there's a finite amount. You're going to lose some to Tesla. You're going to lose some to Rivian. You may lose some to Lucid. But what are you doing to maintain your existing customers? And how many touch points does that take to do that? From initial sale to service to repeat business. And what the dealers that are really forward thinking, or in my opinion, the, the dealers that are ahead of the curve are doing, Benstock being one, there's others, is they're saying, listen, we need to maintain that customer base and then figure out how to sell them another car. Right. The retention piece is where really it's going to, you know, if I was if I was going to de-staff my sales side, what I'd want to do is is upstaff my retention side. We whether that be BDC or service or follow up or after sales or whatever it might be. That's where it has to happen, and it has to happen no matter where the customer are. So if the customer's on the website, it has to happen. If the customer's using a call, touching a call center, or it's after hours, or if it's service, that customer service level's got to be great all the way around. Yeah. It's not perfect at Tesla, and it certainly won't be at Lucid, it won't be at Rivian, and it won't be at Carvana, and it won't be at uh, Automax or CarMax. It won't be at any of these. It won't be at any of these dealers, but you have to focus on that because that's going to be the, the secret to continuing because that millennial or younger doesn't care about the, 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 the car the way that uh, Gen X and older does. They're not, they're not car driven they're service driven or i want it right now driven i mean right when i look yeah. at tesla i see tesla as this with the battery yeah i mean well, the I think are okay looking in my opinion they're fast in my opinion are they the best built thing out there no are they really electric car no so they have that kind of feel that i like not really but that customer doesn't care they want that instant gratification mm -hmm. that ability to interact with like a phone with a screen and all this stuff they want that service model that's around their life they want ownership on their terms they want different things and and that's true whether it's staff in your dealership or whether it's the customers that that gen x and older that'd be me isn't going to be here forever so that millennial and younger is the future Right to gear your staff around that customer and provide that experience, whether it be online, offline, in store, and that's going to mean smaller dealerships. I think with a better experience, a lot more remote service. It's going to mean taking better care of the customer and making sure that you're retaining that customer, not twenty percent, but seventy, eighty percent. And those customers you lose, you're going to lose to that dealer who has inventory right now or a better experience. Or maybe not even a better car, but that person just treated them better. I mean, if yeah, they I mean, an Escalade, could they buy something else? Yeah. 
I like I like what you, a couple of things you said there. And I want to unpack them, like the phone thing. Like, uh, there's no question to me that the the, the customers are going to own their car via their phone, yep. right? Their keys are going to be in the phone. Um, doing everything in some sort of app format is going to definitely be like you'll be able to control everything via that phone. So the my question is, um, what, which I've been I've been um, I've been kind of pushing with the stores that I consult with is like. Do you have an app? Are you app? You know, are you thinking about building some sort of app for your dealership? And more importantly, are you building enough value in that app for customers to download it and use it? Because it's going to, in my opinion, like that's going to be something that that needs that it's going to be part of the future. And the and either you're going to build one and, and start now, or you're going to have to buy it from somebody um, at some point in the near future. And then to the personalization point. I totally agree with that. First 20 years of the internet, like I, I mentioned this on an episode the other day, I, I'm 39 years old. I've been in the car business 22 years. Yes. When I first started, I remember the dealership that I was working at talking about the website and you know de de debating whether they were going to put inventory on that site. And my thought now is like, dude, you wouldn't even dream about running a dealership without a website. Yeah. And so if those first 20 years was building, was standardizing this thing, the next 20 years is personalization. And so your website needs to have some sort of authorization portal where people are signing up and, and you're giving them that personalized experience based on where they are in the ownership journey. We talk a lot about the purchasing journey, but we don't talk nearly enough about the ownership journey. And the mean year isn't going down. If anything, is going up. So those customers are, are owning cars for long longer periods of time they have these moments of of uh impact during their ownership journey and yeah. we we do a terrible job at communicating that and connecting with them at those at those precise moments with the right message with the right time that builds that loyalty that builds that recurring business with that with that potential owner of our brand and and more importantly owner uh, um uh what am i trying to say um that have said yes to us basically by servicing and purchasing at our particular dealership. So I love that you mentioned that you kind of talked about those two points because I think that that's definitely kind of, I don't, you know, it's in the, it's in the evolution roadmap, no question. Yeah, well 60 to 80% of customers only look at your dealership website with this. Yeah. Vast majority of dealers, and I'm not beating up on any web providers because that's not the point, are using technology that was designed 20 years ago for daddy bloggers called WordPress. WordPress yeah. is not state-of-the-art, guys. I mean, that's yep. old stuff that doesn't work well on phones, even with some of the better providers out there. The customer today doesn't care that you don't understand that. They're just going to go to the website that works well, whether it be an app or website. It's got to work on this. The next thing, and this, this drives me nuts on a daily basis, what if I use this, which most people don't, but let's say I use it as a phone and I actually call your dealership from your website, from an <laughs> app, whatever. Would you care to care to call 20 dealerships and try and get a person? I mean, between the antiquated push one for this, press six for that, press three for this. I, I've seen ones that have three different menus. Like, you, you for, are you a new customer or existing? Okay, I'm existing. And then press one for used cars, press two for... For new cars, plus three. If you have a problem with your car, press four, press eight. Okay, where are the people, dude? Right. And then- What are you doing? And, and then, then they hang up on me anyway. And it goes to a voice message. Yeah. or a vo And you're like, yeah. you, what? You want me to leave a message? Yeah. Like, so number one, have an app or a website that works on a phone. Number two, the best dealerships that I've talked to, and I talk to thousands a month, all over the North America and sometimes internationally, but North America, hire a receptionist or a call center or outsource if you have to, so that when someone calls a dealership, it says, hello, this is XYZ, how can I help you? Yeah. A person needs to be the first step. And even if that costs money, it doesn't matter because that person, that personalized service versus the, I'm calling the IRS, one for this, six for that, 24 for this. You know, and I've even had this happen twice where it's like I, I answer it once and then it goes through another thing and it says, oh, and then it asks me the same question or it asks me a question, I push a number and it doesn't work or it hangs up on me or whatever. Uh, at the end of the day, that service, 
you can't put a price on it. It's that yeah. important. I know they're trying to screen calls and move into different places and try and make it better, whatever. But the reality is the customer service piece is what it comes down to. I mean, when you call Apple computer and they have a, a voice assistant that helps, but essentially you get through to a person within a very short period of time. And that's what needs to happen. If you want to retain customers, if you want to get new customers, the lion's share customers today, when I look at web metrics across the different dealers, are looking for inventory online. Then when they call the dealership, they're looking for customer service. And if they don't get it, they go to the next dealership. Yeah. They're not even brand anymore. They're just like, well, listen, I want a car. Do you have it? Number, number one. Number two, do I even want to consider doing business with you? What's the experience when I call you? And I think that is probably permeating from Amazon and from Zappos and from Tesla and from other brands, Apple and all these other brands who are basically saying, listen, number one, it's the customer. I mean, uh, Amazon Bezos didn't become a multi-gazillionaire by accident. For him, it's right. about the customer. It may not be perfect, but if you take care of the customer, even if your product isn't perfect, you got a better chance of retaining them and selling them something. And I think dealers really need to figure that out. Yeah, technology needs to be part of it. You need to have a website that's state-of-the-art, that's forward-thinking, that's moving forward, that works for the customer, that's easy to use, that makes it easy for them. AI, I think, will be part of that. Conversational AI is coming. So I think you'll see yeah. that within the next you know, 8 to 12 months, maybe 18 months from Google or whoever else. So that'll make, help handle your after hours. But Invest in frontline staff and train them to handle customers because if your competition isn't doing that, you're going to steal my customer. Like I guarantee you, you will. Yeah, Ian, that's the thing, man. Like I, um, I say this to my dealers all the time. It's like, listen, guys, this is you gotta. Th these are the little things that differentiate yourselves from the rest that make all the difference in the world. Because if the customer like to your point, if they call and they call and they call and they call and they get these automated machines, it's very difficult for them to connect with a human being, but they call your dealership and the first interaction they have is with a human being. I mean, that just, it, it says, it speaks volumes. Well, you know it'll shock I mean? them. They'll be like, yeah. wow, you got a person there? Right. Okay, what exactly. else do you have there that these other guys don't have? Exactly. Like someone to help me maybe? Yeah. <laughs> so... It's just, and we can still do those things now, I mean, you know, the future, who knows, but now it's still easy for us to differentiate ourselves because it's those little things that nobody really thinks about or implements that make all the difference in the world. So 100%. Still, I mean, if you call your cell phone provider and we know how much everyone loves their cell phone provider, yeah. you know, I mean, that's probably the worst job in the universe is to be on the call center cell phone providers <laughs> screaming about bills every day but anyway, <laughs> or credit card company, right? They still have a person that can help you. Like they still have a person there, but I'm selling you a call it 25 to 75 or a hundred thousand dollar car. I've got to like deal with what I deal with the IRS before I can talk to a person about a hundred thousand dollar car, but my cell phone, I can scream at some guy or gal at infinitum. Yeah. I, mean, I might have to wait five minutes, but I get to talk to a person, right? Like, what are we talking about here? Like that. And, and realistically, it's probably a better comparison because that millennials conditioned to this, they're conditioned mm -hmm. to a monthly bill. If you provide a better level of customer service than their cell phone provider, for example, or the hardware provider, Apple or Samsung or whatever, or Tesla, you're going to retain that customer because if they, if they're going to then measure that other company, against that. So if you're, if I call 50 dealers today and one of them answers the phone and the other ones, I get lost in some voicemail quandary and they hang up on me. I mean, I guarantee you the one that answered the phone has got a much higher chance of me becoming a customer because Absolutely. I don't have a lot of time. Like I want to, like, do you have it? It's COVID. I want to come buy it. I'm not going to just go there. Like, I mean, it's not like people come into dealerships the way they used to. And I don't think that's going to change. I think people are going to, after 24 months, they're going to say, okay, I don't want to come to the dealership. I'm going to call them first or send them an email or a text or whatever. Do you have the car, dude? <laughs> like, right. I'm not coming in and spending five hours to get beat up. Like I learned from that 18 to 24 months. I no longer have to do that. I can, I can lob stuff at you from across the town, right? I mean, or even yeah. across the country. Like I can buy a car in, 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 uh, in Washington state. I could buy a car in Toronto. I could buy a car in New York city. 
they'll ship me that car. I don't have to go there. Right. Exactly. I mean, Dude, this has been awesome, Ian. I really, really appreciate you doing this. It's been a lot of fun for me. No um, we're getting real close to that time. There is one question that I ask everybody yeah. that comes on the show. But before, I wanted to give you three minutes to tell us how we can get in touch with you. What you what do you got going on? Um, tell us about your show. I'm gonna put it, I'm gonna put links in the show notes, folks. So make sure to go in there and check it out. Um, you know, and, and reach out to Ian and connect with him if you wanna, you know, kind of ex extend this conversation. Yeah, we're always looking for guest speakers. So if you want to be a speaker on the Auto Hub show, there is no cost. So just so you know, I mean, we're always looking for sponsors for shows or seasons, but there's no cost. Auto Hub show is every Monday for the most part at 11 o'clock East on Zoom. Uh, you can check out autohubshow.com uh, and that's where you get all the information. You can look me up on LinkedIn. It's Ian Nethercott. There's probably not a lot of us, especially ones that are, have a podcast. <laughs> So it's <laughs> uh, and of course, feel free to reach out to me if you have questions or I can help in any way. Uh, we do also have a section of our website for people looking for a job. So I, there's no cost to that either, but I've got a bunch of different headhunters on there. But if you have a deal group or you're a headhunter or you can help people find jobs, or you're looking for a job, check it out. And if you want to get in touch with any of the speakers or watch past episodes, you can watch those episodes on YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, on our website. Uh, or, of course, link, look for it on LinkedIn Live or Facebook Live. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I've been on it for a long time. So, you know, you're probably more likely to find me there. But I do have a Facebook account. But LinkedIn is gen generally the go-to place. And that's about it, really. Right on. Make sure to connect with Ian. Check out the show. Please check out his show. Um, make sure you guys go in there and, and you know, uh, subscribe and uh, you know, the ones that have been on this on my show with me for for um, these whole six seasons know that I'm big on education, and that's why I started the podcast myself. And the more we can uh, we can connect with these platforms and utilize these channels, I think it's just this huge for our industry. Um, all righty, sir. There is one question that I ask everybody that comes yep. on the show. Oh, don't forget to connect to Jeff Jeff Polo. He's my partner in crime. He's not here. Right on. Yeah, make sure. Again, go to the show notes. We're going to link everybody in there. Um, all right. So there is one question that I ask everybody that comes on the show. And that question is, where do you see the automotive industry headed in the next five years and why? I think the automotive industry is headed to uh, a digital model in terms of people configuring and buying their cars online in one type or another. And I think what's also going to change is the way people own cars. I think it's only a question of time before people will have a shared ownership model or they'll have use of their car for some other form of transportation or possibly even um, they won't own the car at all. It'll be a monthly recurring revenue model. And the reason being the price of cars is increasing and how much time cars sit idle in a day all over the world just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think you'll always have those car aficionados who buy cars and want to own them. But I think the younger generation is going to want a different way to buy cars. They're going to want to own them in different ways. They may not want to own them at all. They may just want to have use of cars. Uh, and I think that's going to change the way dealers and manufacturers sell and get repeat business from customers. And if you saw what happened recently with Tesla and Hertz, that's basically they're already going down that road with, well, I want to spend XYZ a month to have use of a car, be it a Tesla or whatever. And this is something that I think started with leasing and is, is continuing as we move into electric, just based on the cap cost of the car. I mean, spending 30, 40, 50, 60, $70,000 for an electric car, the size of a, you know, a Corolla, it seems to be crazy to me, but for that customer, it's not. And I think you've, you've got to think outside the box to survive and thrive in automotive um, in these times. And I think that pace is only going to accelerate just because I don't think people that are younger have that same attached value to a car as people in my generation might or older. Well, there you have it, folks. Right on. I really like the, the, the recurring model. I definitely I'm, I'm a believer in that. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And it's exciting to see what that's going to look like. So especially if you can alternate vehicles, like that'd be super cool. Well, have you seen what uh, Porsche is doing? Yeah, no, they started that a few years ago, Yeah, I believe. And they started in a couple, I think uh, um, 
was it Atlanta or something like that? I remember I was I remember reading about that in automotive news and they and when I was working for Toyota, one of the distributors at, at Toyota, they had started that in uh, in the Texas region. They yeah, because if, if, if I was a Porsche person and I let's just say I was spending a thousand dollars a month on a lease. I don't know. Let's just say that's what the number for me was. So if if I could spend twelve hundred bucks a month for lease and that included insurance and I could switch it whenever I want, why would I not do that? Yeah, <laughs> it makes, it's, makes makes perfect. And maybe sense. it's even less. I don't know. I mean, I know Porsche does it, but I'm sure other manufacturers are looking at. It. I know Genesis has got some interesting stuff around there as well. I mean, when you look at Genesis's model with basically services included and everything else, I mean. What's that number for you? If I'm if I'm someone who's used to spending 500 bucks on a car and I own one car, for example, and I could have the option to switch my car for the same money, I mean that's that's I think the kind of math that's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But anyway, folks, there you have it. Ian Nethercott, thank you so much again for doing this. I really really appreciate it. And thanks to every one of you for tuning in. Um that's all the time that we have for today. And as usual, we'll talk later. We only host the well-respected. The vendor Lexus Nexus. We don't sell digital marketing. What you do? We inspected with our DT vendor management solutions. We come in like the EPA to clear out the pollution. Take the trash. Go keep your P&L clean. Your inventory loom. Now more than ever, businesses need more efficient sales. That's why thousands of dealerships trust Four Eyes to help with things like automated inventory email updates and ensuring all of your leads get into the CRM. To try Four Eyes for free, visit foureyes.io slash dealertalk. That's foureyes.io slash dealertalk.